Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. Joyce Hunter had every reason to fail. In a moment, she's going to tell you why the odds were stacked against her, how her involvement in the gay rights movement in the early 1970s saved her life, and how an anti-gay attack set her on a path to help LGBTQ young people. But I don't want to get in the way of Joyce telling you herself how her life unfolded, so I'll let her fill in the rest. It's a short trip from my Upper West Side apartment in Manhattan to Joyce Hunter's Sunnyside neighborhood in Queens, New York. After a quick ride on the elevated 7 train, I find myself walking down a tree-lined street with stout six-story apartment buildings, a lot like the Queens apartment house where I grew up. Joyce's English Tudor-style building was built in the late 1930s, around the same time she was born. Joyce lives on the second floor, so I take the stairs. I ring the bell, and she greets me at the door with a smile. Joyce is just shy of 50 with close-cropped, curly, dark hair and wears large, wire-rimmed glasses. She's dressed in slacks and a button-down shirt. Her voice reminds me of home because she speaks with the same New York accent as my mother and father. She leads me into her bright living room. We take our seats, and I attach the microphone to her collar. I press record. Interview with Joyce Hunter of the Hetrick Martin Institute on December 9th, Friday, 1988. Location, Sunnyside, Queens. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one. I was born in uh, Staten Island, mm-hmm. 1939. Mm-hmm. I was born in a home for uh, unwed mothers. My mother and father were not married. My mother was an Orthodox Jew. My father was black. And my mother, by the way, was 16. 16? Yeah, 16, 17. She was kind of young. And um, my mother got ill with uh, hepatitis. And then we were taken away when my mother was in the hospital. Today they call them group homes. In those days they called them orphanages, even though your parents weren't dead. From the time that I was five until I was 14, I was in an orphanage. 
Did you have any sense during those years that you were somehow different? Different. Different, definitely different, especially when I was around 10. I knew, but you know, you know, you don't know what it is, and it was like, number one, they used to take us to the movies every Saturday, and I was crazy only about the women. It was the only thing that I would focus on. You know what it is? You recognize difference before you recognize sameness. And I didn't feel the same as everybody else. So at 14, you left the orphanage? Yeah. I went to live with my mother and father in the Bronx and the projects. Growing up in the Bronx and on the streets of the Bronx is, uh, you hear everything. And then if you get your first word of faggot and, and queer, it scared the hell out of me. I thought that somebody was going to come after me. But I don't think that anybody knew. Although the way I, you know, I don't look much different, you know, it's kind of like quote-unquote butchy looking, but I don't think they made the connection because I was uh, very quiet and I tend not to, at that time, speak a lot, believe it or not. And then there were, I went through a period where I wouldn't talk a lot at all and uh, went into therapy because of it. I tried to commit suicide at 17. I was in a, in a situation that was pretty violent. Uh, my At father home. was very abusive, yeah. And uh, so that was a factor, not being able to... I missed the kids from the home. You know, they were like my... I was there eight years, you know, and I didn't like being where I was. So the homosexuality was a factor. The family situation was a factor. And uh, I just thought it would be easier to be dead than to live. My mother was like... Banging on the door, I stopped, and she took me to the hospital. And I never went back home since. That was the last time I was in that home. When you were 17 years old? Yeah. I spent my 18th birthday in a state hospital. So you, but, so you saw a psychiatrist there then? Once. Once? <laughs> Once. You served time there. <laughs> really? I swear to God, that's how it was to me. I was away for almost a year, I guess. When I came out, I started seeing a therapist, and I didn't want to be gay, and I, I didn't want everybody to hate me, and I wanted it to go away. And some therapist said, well, if you get married, it, it'll go away. And I, uh, well, I wanted to believe it, and so I did. And at 18, I went and got married to a really nice guy. Did it go away? No. I was married one year, and then I met, I met this woman, my first adult lover, while I was married, and I knew it was never going away. And I fell in love with a woman, and I kept it a secret. I mean, I was so, I had never experienced any kind of feeling like that ever. You know, not with no guy, but it took me 13 years to leave the marriage. And I had two children while I was married. Did you feel, you must have felt trapped. Terribly trapped. When I decided to come out, it was either killing myself or coming out. But I had the kids, and the kids kept me from doing such a thing. Uh -huh. And um, so I came out, and I was a much better parent for it. After I have a wonderful out. relationship with my kids today. Did you go to any of the early gay pride marches? Well, I didn't go to the first one. I was not there. That was 60. That was 70. 70, 70. was the first one. Uh, and I didn't go in 71, 72. Tell me a little bit about that first march. Huh? I was um, kind of um, excited, almost arrogant, 
gay rights now, <laughs> you know, and uh, excuse me, fuck you if you, if you don't like it. <laughs> it was right. like, one of the things that the movement did for me, it gave me a vehicle to express my anger. What were you angry about? Everything, uh -huh. that I had been denied my life, that I had no adolescence. My childhood was, uh, was robbed. I always say that when I come back in the next life, I want to come out at two, and I want to be able to enjoy being who I am. Let me just tell you how I got involved in the first place, because okay. I, I think that might help a little. My former lover took me down to uh, the firehouse, and this was 1971. I remember walking in, and it was a, it was a woman's dance, and I was, like, really overwhelmed. I'll never forget that moment, and it was exciting. And to see so many gay people on the street, because people were coming out in the uh -huh. street. Never, never saw anything like that. When I was growing up, I didn't think there were any gay people at all. And, and I just thought I was this, this odd entity, you know. And it was like, you know, oh, wow. It, that's, all I could say was, oh, wow. It's just like, yo. You, know, you found was, home. That's you right. Found, I, I, found. I, it was, for me, it was like coming home. This is it. This, this, is, this is who I am. What were you doing for a living then? In... Seventy-one. I was working in a factory. I didn't get I didn't get a high school diploma mm -hmm. until seventy-five. So I was also I had dropped out of school. Uh -huh. Also going on at the same time was my, was my ex lover was uh, a student at Hunter College. They wanted to start a lesbian feminist organization, and I got involved with Lesbians Rising. Nobody wanted to be the spokesperson for an on-campus lesbian group. You know, they're concerned about their careers. And I said, well, I'm not a student. They said, well, we just want you to be the spokesperson. This also meant that I was going out to other groups representing Lesbians Rising. Did you also work with, with non-gay people? Did you talk to non-gay groups? It's very interesting because in those early years, most of my work was in the non-gay community, educating people. I walked into a classroom in 1972 in Mary Lefkowitz's human sexuality class. Yeah, Harold Pickett and I walked into that class. And basically, we, we went in there and talked about who we were. Even though it was uncomfortable at first, you know, uh, I felt that it was so important to dispel the myths about us. Because I also felt, you go into a class of 30, there's got to be a couple of gay people in that class. And during this time, I might add, from 73, 75, all those years up, I started, I was working with college doing uh, pe gay peer counseling. But what happens was that some of these students were bringing in high school students or kids that they had picked up on the street. And I would never say no to the kids. And if they came in, they wanted counseling, we would counsel them. You were at that time a peer, you weren't a, a professional. Then. I was not a professional. I was not even a student. Were you working at the time doing something else? I was working on Pippins on Fifth Avenue as an apprentice chef. I was going to be a chef. Things changed for me in 75 when I, I, I got attacked. And uh, it really changed my life around. I couldn't, I couldn't do the work anymore. Uh, being a chef was out of the question because I was attacked and I was hurt pretty bad and it left me with a chronic back problem. You were attacked at the restaurant? You were attacked out on the street? I was attacked out on the street in the, uh, at near NYU on the 
northeast side of the park. Washington for any particular Square, reason? For being gay. It was an anti-gay attack. They came behind us and started kicking this can at me. Uh, they were kicking it pretty hard and it was hitting me and I turned around to like, I remember saying like, oh, come on, or something like, that. you know, like, you know, what's the matter here? You know, what's this all about? And the guy hit me. And with the first punch, my nose was broke. And um, the other person hit me in the stomach, which I couldn't stand up after I got hit in the stomach. And I, I fell down. And, uh, and I was already now a bloody mess. But I got kicked in the back. And they were yelling things. Who do you think you are? You look like a man who show you. You know, that kind of stuff. Oh, God. The woman with me, uh, she had to fight off the other two. And then there was this guy who um, hailed the cab and got us in there, so we got to the hospital. And I was in the hospital for a month. So now I come out of the hospital. My doctor is saying, you can't do this work because I was in so much pain. My doctor told me to go to OVR, Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. They said, well, we train you. So they took all these tests and everything, and they said, we'll send you to college, your college material. And I said, well, I don't even have a high school diploma. So I said, well, well, we'll send you to NYU to college prep course, and you'll take the test. And that's what I did. What an irony. Do you ever think about the irony of that, uh, that yes. experience? Yes. It, it, I do think about it a lot because what they really did, I mean, I mean, my education, I mean, then, boy, and it was, I was hungry for it. What are I, those, the people who beat you up had a motive. Yeah, they, I think they wanted to bust my face, which, uh, well, they, they half did. But their motive was not? Not to make me this better activist, no, or this person who would go on to make some real change. No, I'm sure that was not in there. I think they wanted to put me six feet under. They sent an activist really on her way. That's what they did. That's what they did. They don't know. <laughs> How did you meet Emery Hetrick and Damian Martin? Okay. I came to speak at NIPAC. NIPAC was? New York Political Action Committee, NIPAC. And they were members of NIPAC. I wanted something to happen in a big way for lesbian and gay youth. And when I met them, you know how you get this feeling that the right people met at the right time? I immediately took to them. Emery it was such a, a wonderful, warm, kind of person. And he was such a caring person. He, uh, you know, he started Sage. He was, he, he was a man with vision. And he really felt that, you know, we have to start protecting our youth. So those first three years, we were basically doing education and advocacy. And we were training professionals to work with lesbian, and we were raising the issue. We got very little support from the gay community. Why do you think that's so? Because I believe that the gay community has internalized that, uh, that child molester myth. You know, it's, it, it really is. And I think that we have to get that monkey off our backs. These young people are a part of our community, and we can't deny that. In 1983, we opened our doors for social services, direct services. Can you tell me about the first kid at all? Oh, oh, one, yes. <laughs> And she's doing very well today. Uh -huh. She's a kid who's grown a lot. Uh -huh. She's going to college and working today. There's been some real good stories. Uh, some of the, a lot of these kids come back later. It's exciting. That's uh -huh. the good part. Tell me why it's exciting. Because they grow up with a better sense of themselves. They don't have to work it out in adulthood. 
where a lot of us had to work out our, our identity issues, our relating to other people. And, and that's an important thing, to learning how to socialize. I think about when we were growing up that we didn't have the place to develop our interpersonal skills. We were, we were not telling our friends who we were. You couldn't honestly discuss relationships, sex, sexuality, um, because we weren't saying who we were. And it was so great to see kids having friends that were gay. This and must have made you think about your own childhood when you it, saw it, these it, kids. It did. I remember one time Steve came to me. He said to me, you know, the kids are real quiet. I said, well, well why don't you go back there and check it out and see what, what's going on. So he went back out there. He says to me, I want you to go back there and you have to see this to believe it. So I go back there. I never thought that I would live to see something like this. A group of gay kids playing spin the bottle. <laughs> and I was, I almost cried. I mean, because I was so moved by it, uh, you know, and, and remembering how hard it was and for me. And, and just, you know, oh my God. I said to them, I want you to know what I think is going on here is so beautiful. Um, Why was it so beautiful? Because I could have never imagined it. They weren't lonely. They were laughing. They were having a good time. And, and it wasn't like, it was very affectionate stuff. It wasn't, uh, you know, hot, heavy sex or anything like that. It was affectionate. There was a real closeness and, and, and friendship. And it was fun. They were having fun. I didn't have fun when I was a kid. And the realization that they're just like, any other group of kids, and if you leave them alone, they're curious. And, um, and I explained that to them. I said, I want you to know that while I'm going to ask you to stop this because you're in an agency and it's really not the appropriate place, I want you to know there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And they all smiled. They said, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, but... I mean, it was never nowhere in my wildest imagination that a group of kids could get together, you know, to do that. Did you feel that you'd, you'd accomplished your goal? Oh, at that moment. Was this moment, validating, validating? This was very validating that, you know, and, uh, and it was good, clean fun. Two years after the Hetrick Martin Institute for the Protection of Lesbian and Gay Youth opened its doors to provide direct social services, Joyce Hunter co-founded the Harvey Milk High School. It's a small alternative New York City public high school primarily for at-risk LGBTQ youth. What started out as a two-room school with a dozen students at the back of the Hetrick Martin Institute offices is now its own building adjacent to HMI's headquarters in New York City's East Village. Each school day, up to 100 students fill its hallways and classrooms. HMI manages the facility and provides supportive services including mental health counseling, arts and cultural programs, job readiness, health and wellness education, and academic enrichment services, both during and after school. It's exactly the kind of place where a teenaged Joyce Hunter would have thrived. When Joyce said in her interview that she was hungry for education, she was not kidding. After graduating from college, she went on to get her master's degree and a PhD. Now in her late 70s, Joyce is a research scientist at the HIV Center for Clinical and Behavioral Studies at the New York State Psychiatric Institute and Columbia University, where she's also an assistant professor in psychiatry and public health. 
Joyce lives with her partner, Jan Baer, of 36 years in the same Sunnyside apartment where I first interviewed her 29 years ago. Between them, they have 16 grandchildren, one great-grandchild, and another great-grandchild on the way. To learn more about Joyce Hunter and the work of HMI, go to makinggayhistory.com. You'll find information, photos, and links to additional resources. That's also where you can listen to all our previous episodes and sign up for our newsletter. Before I go, I'd like to say hello to one of our listeners. Sam is a high school senior who's got a tough situation at home. Her strictly religious parents threw her older sister out of their house when they found out she was gay. Sam listens to a Making a History episode every morning before she goes to school and to another episode when she gets home. She tells us that the voices and the stories she hears are a shelter for her. Sam, we hear you. Hang in there. You are not alone. It takes a team to bring the Making Gay History voices to life. A big thank you to the MGH crew who make this podcast happen each week. Our hardworking executive producer, Sarah Birmingham, mentor, friend, and co-producer, Jenna Weiss-Berman, special producer, Barry Finkel, audio engineer, Casey Holford, researcher, Zachary Seltzer, our website designer, Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, and social media strategist, Will Coley. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. So long, until next time. So I'm Aaliyah Jones. I came to HMI when I was 17. Dave really just helped me to be the person I am today. I didn't have a job before. And now I'm actually like a semi-adult, which is pretty cool. My name is Destiny James. I started off coming at HMI when I was 18 as a homeless youth. And since I've been here, I've learned so much about the LGBT community and I've learned a lot about myself. So that room over there and that room over there are HSC. We at HMI think it's really important that if you want to pursue higher education, you have that opportunity to. So we also have scholarships, internships, grants, all sorts of stuff to make sure that you have money to go to college. Chris Griffin is actually the guy who does that. He's fantastic. He just helped me get financial aid because I had no idea what a 1040 even was. What we're about to um, walk past is the pantry. When you come to pantry, you have 15 minutes. You take half of your time to actually take a shower, and then the other half you take to look around and see what clothes. That way is the kitchen where they used to cook, and then we're walking into the cafeteria right now. Um, Right now they're setting up for Kiki Lounge, which is a super important part of the HMI community. Um, They're going to come in, they're going to kiki, there's going to be dancing, prizes, and just all sorts of like good having fun.